On this episode of Progressive Palaver, the group continues their discussion of the landmark album Operation Mindcry. Hi and welcome to Progressive Palaver, a group of lifelong friends and appreciators of music discussing the greatest progressive rock bands album by album. I'm Joe Beauclair and on this episode of Progressive Palaver I'm joined by my very good friends Ken Gregory, Paul Zotter and Tom Corcoran as we continue our discussion of Queensryche's Operation Mindcrime. <laughs> How can you not think that riff when you say that that title? It just it it's it's intertwined. It's indelibly connected. It's wonderful. It really is. It really is. All right. So, gentlemen, we spent an entire episode last episode just wandering around the outside of of Operation Mind Crime. We didn't even get inside and I'm glad that we did because, you know, I think obviously there was plenty to talk about. And but but tonight we have to get in and and start to talk about the music itself, which is is going to be, you know, very illuminating, I think, because I think there's so much here and so much to talk about. And there are there are interesting things, right? Like Ken, you have probably been the most vocal proponent of the the musical differences between the two guitarists. And I I think, you know, Operation Mindcrime really really highlights those two the those two approaches um not in in the fact that it it doesn't go together. It goes together very well, but if you pay attention I think, and if you know someone was was playing a game, you know, choose which guitarist wrote this. I think you could probably get most of these tracks pretty pretty easily. But we'll we'll get there when we get inside. Now, until we go inside, I did want to maybe just spend a few moments again on the outside and and talk a, a little bit about. You know what? How this album is generally perceived or received, and so it, it, the wikis do a, a really great job of this. So they talk about, um, you know, there, there's a list here of of review scores. So on all music, it scored what appears to be uh, four and a half stars. Collector's Guide to Heavy Metal gives it nine out of ten. Kerrang! gives it four stars. Metal Forces is nine and a half out of ten. Um, Rock Hard from Germany gives it nine and a half out of ten. And of course, the Rolling Stone album guide gives it a solid three because they're just a bunch of whatever. You're um, kidding. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's uh it's really quite interesting. Wait, who who was that? The Rolling Stone album guide. Oh, of course. Of course. Yeah, we would expect that. 
Now, I was looking through this part of the, the wiki article, and it was very, very interesting. So the album was certified gold on April 14th of 1989 and certified platinum two years later. I don't know that I was aware of this, but I Don't Believe in Love was nominated for a Grammy Award in 1990 for Best Metal Performance, which I find to be very, wow. very fascinating. I wonder who they lost to in 1990. Uh, we'll have to look at that. Now, in 2016, Classic Rock named it among the, quote, 10 essential progressive metal albums. So let's talk about those 10 progressive metal albums, shall we? Those 10 progressive albums include Queensryche's Operation Mindcrime, Dream Theater Scenes from a Memory, Fate's Warning, Awaken, The Guardian, Pain of Salvation, The Perfect Element, Tool, Lateralis, Mastodon, Leviathan, Angra, Rebirth, Sabotage, Gutter Ballet, Symphony X, Five, or V, The New Mythology Suite, and wow. Opeth, Blackwater Park. So I thought that was interesting. Um, and then... Um, the other one that really caught my eye was in 2011. This this is funny. And, and this actually ties into a little bit of a side conversation that we had last week. LA Weekly ranked the album at number 14 on their top 20 hair metal albums of all time, calling it Queensryche's magnum opus and a, quote, masterpiece. Mm. Now, the phrase magnum opus is a phrase that annoys me almost as much as angst, but we'll leave that be. Um, but but let's look at, at those, those 20 top hair metal albums. So at number 20, we have Junkyard's Junkyard. White, at number 19, we have White Lion with Pride. Number 18, and... When you hear number 17, you'll understand why I'm a little miffed about this, but I was happy to read it at first. And that is Dawkins' Tooth and Nail. Oh, nice. It's somewhat, you know, um, cut down by the fact that at number 17 is Europe's The Final Countdown. Jesus Christ. Wow. Yeah, not good. Number 16, the self-titled Whitesnake album. <laughs> Yes. Number 15, Spinal Tap. This is Spinal Tap soundtrack. Oh, come on. Number, <laughs> number 14, Queensryche, Operation Mind Crime. Number 13, Twisted Sister, Stay Hungry. Oh, come on. <laughs> I mean, it's, wow. It's, it's hair metal. Come on. Number 12, Bon Jovi, Slippery When Wet. Number 11, Cinderella, Night Songs. Number 10 is Warrant with Dirty, Rotten, Filthy, Stinking, Rich. Number 9, Rat with Out of the Cellar. Wow. Number 8, Def Leppard with Hysteria. Wow. Number 7, the self-titled Faster Pussycat. Number 6 is... Um, Wait a second. The self-titled Faster Pussycat album beat out Hysteria? 
<laughs> right? It doesn't what? make any and tooth and nail and out of the cellar. <laughs> <laughs> and Operation Mind Crime. <laughs> Number six is poison. Look what the cat dragged in. Number five, an oldie but a goodie, Motley Cruz Shout at the Devil. I knew they would okay. be in there somewhere. Number four, the self-titled debut from Skid Row. Number three, Motley Crue representing in the top five with Too Fast for Love. That's a good one. Number two, Def Leppard Pyromania. Yeah, that's really well put together. Yeah, that's a really good one. And I'm not even going to read number one because it pisses me off too much. But no, come Oh, come on, read it. Oh, you know what it is. And I've got to make the, the motion. I still want to hear you say it. Oh, God. It's not Guns N' Roses. It is Guns N' Roses. <laughs> Appetite <laughs> for Destruction. I like how me making oh. the jerk-off motion gives Tom the clue as to what exactly album it is. Appetite <laughs> for Destruction was a game-changer. I mean, it was such a crossover between metal, classic, rock, and indie. I, I'm with them. You, you have to include that. Uh. Joe, why exactly did we start off this episode reading off hair metal bands? Like, what are we really? Because because some of you people gave me a whole bunch of shit for calling Queensrÿche a metal band last week. Oh no, they're not a real metal band. Blah 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 blah. So boom, we go to the wikis and we get this. So <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Hey, incidentally, in 1990, the winner of the uh, Grammy for Best Metal Performance Song was Metallica for the song One. Hard to beat out one. It, I'm, o I'm okay with that. The other nominees outside of Queen's Rex, I Don't Believe in Love, were Dokken, Beast from the East, Faith No More, The Real Thing, and Soundgarden, Ultra Mega. Okay. Now, I don't have a problem with that. What I do have a problem with is that in the 10 years between 1990 and 99, Metallica won no less than three, four times. And of all things, Nine Inch Nails won twice. So Metallica and Nine Inch Nails account for 60% of the Grammys given to a metal performance song. And listen... Nine Inch Nails is not metal. It's not even fucking close to metal. Well, Queen's right isn't a hair band either. I don't care. I agree. I take I, this. I, I agree. But the I, but now knowing so Soundgarden Did you see their hair. <laughs> <laughs> Soundgarden was beat out in all so many years that it makes sense to me in 95 when they won for Spoonman why they walked up like drinking beers and just like being dicks because by 1995 they had been passed over like three times the Grammys are bullshit I mean fundamentally the Grammys are bullshit this does of course remind me of the fact that we have never done our Rush Grammy show which is we definitely is, we have to it's all on me that's the only reason that hasn't happened and we definitely need to have that conversation i you have the documentation on i do have the documentation we just haven't scheduled it with uh with mark anthony k because oh. we, we can't uh like we can't talk 
<laughs> we can't talk a Rush Grammy uh, episode without, you know, someone from the Yes Music podcast who openly declares Rush to be the greatest progressive uh, rock band ever. Oh, uh, we have to. <laughs> and we have to juxtapose all of Rush's uh, Grammy losses with all of their Juno awards that they no doubt won. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Okay, so so Tom, I am done bringing in the fluff. I have nothing else that we need or want to discuss at this point. So I will throw open the floor for any sort of general comments based on our our contemplation since last week, and then we can get into the goodies. Joe, I want to jump on the first thing you talked about with the with the difference between Wilton and DeGarmo writing the stuff, right? Because if you look at the credits, I mean, it's it's obvious, right? The stuff that's a little bit more heavy, a little bit more edgy is Wilton, but that accounts for like the first, you know, all, the whole album up to the mission, yep. right? The Needle Lies, and then basically, you know, DeGarmo writes The Mission, Sweet Sister Mary, and all of Side B, practically. Yep. Um, and it is... I I really feel like I never really thought about it before, but like I've I've thought about this before. The fact that the side B or the second half of Operation Mindcrime, while I believe it stays true to the concept and delivers it in a very fulfilling manner, songs like Breaking the Silence, I Don't Believe in Love, really like like flag the upcoming direction the band is heading to in empire like those those two songs really are the blueprint um maybe even eyes of a stranger um sort of show the blueprint for what's coming with empire what i i i i I don't like empire but i love eyes of a stranger eyes of a stranger is epic but are, are, are you saying because it's 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 a little more melodic and poppy and glossy is that where you're going with this I think that's what I'm saying. I think if I think and more so to be fair, it's more so the the melodic the, the melodic nature of breaking the silence and I don't believe in love. But it's the production of Eyes of the Stranger. Like the verses that that go, you know, cut out and clear and then the the heavy chorus like to me that it's though the second half of Operation Mindcrime is like the blueprint for Empire. Yeah, I would, I would, I would agree with that. I, I just wanted to. It's it's an interesting note that Rage for Order has no lead in <laughs> to <laughs> to Mindcrime. <laughs> Rage for Order and Mindcrime are like as you said last week, Paul. They're both islands, uh, great islands, but um, there there there's no lead in. But yeah, I. I, I see that uh, as well um, in in, a, in songs like Jet City Woman or um, Another Rainy Night. Now, I, I don't like those songs nearly as much as the Minecraft songs, but there is a melody. Um, wow, Jet City is, Woman? Dude, that song. What's that? Jet City Woman? <laughs> I'm not a big fan of Jet City oh, Woman. What? But... <laughs> I'm not, <laughs> but, 
Wow. So we haven't we haven't we, we haven't have even we haven't even <laughs> gotten into the music of Operation Mindcrime, and already we're getting people pissed off about the next album. I love it. <laughs> All right. I'm gonna just have to take a well, deep breath gonna- and take a deep breath and wait four weeks till we talk about Empire. Okay. <laughs> I mean, we're already pissing off people uh, talking about faster fucking pussycat. We <laughs> have a goddamn Operation Mindcrime. Hey, hey, I didn't put Queens Reich Operation Mindcrime in a list with faster pussycat. I just read it. That's all. <laughs> I mean, uh, the final countdown. Christ. <laughs> what happened? I I think one. whenever it is that we get to Empire, I think all of this is going to be thrown into stark contrast with a single quote from the singer of this band. Which yes. we'll hear later. We will hear later, yeah. Okay. It's that's I part think, of the Empire show. It's not part of this one. I think, Ken, the point that I'm making is that I'm just going off of memory and feel, is that Empire seems to be when Chris DeGarmo, the, the writing really started to lean his direction. Um, and, the, you know, I, I believe the majority of the second side of Empire is he was Chris the DeGarmo. primary writer on the EP. He was the primary writer on the warning. Yeah, I feel He's like he was the primary writer. He Operation was, but Mind I think wouldn't have happened unless he was the sounding board for Jeff's idea. I mean, he's the primary writer. But when you think about the first half of Operation Mindcrime, you know, the, the, the title track, Revolution Calling, Speak, um, Spreading the Disease. That's all Michael Wilton. And it's fucking amazing. And it's rocking. And I love both of them, so don't get me wrong. Like I'm just I'm just saying that I think that the, the, the scale Well the, the only one that the was scale, exclusively Michael Wilton was speak of what you just listed. I'm pretty sure it was him and Tate though, right? Yeah, it, it, the, the, the the writing credits. Nothing is credited to Wilton by himself. Uh DeGarmo's got a, a couple that are just him, but the the Wilton songs, what we're calling the Wilton songs, are credited as Tate Wilton. So presumably right. Jeff had the words, the story, and they utilized Michael's music. And I just feel like that combo, the scales tilted more towards DeGarmo after after Operation Mindcrime. That's all I'm saying. Well, see, this is great because this brings us to the point we were talking about last week, which is why I I think Joe started off with the whole hair metal thing because there really is, with Queensryche, there is a worthwhile conversation to be had about what is metal and what is hard rock. And we, I'm not going to rehash it because we talked about it mainly last week. But, Paul, you bring up the first part of this album and one could argue that it's definitely more metal in the beginning of this album. And the second part is, is more hard rock. And I, I, I think I'm, I'm agreeing with you on, on what you said earlier, because I, I definitely um, would, would categorize Empire as, as hard rock. It's a silly conversation to have, but it's sort of, um, it's... It's a noteworthy conversation I have. It's a total legitimate conversation I have because it, there really is a difference and there really is a big gray area in there. It's, it's a sort of a complicated gray area. What is hard rock and what is heavy metal? And, and Queensryche rides that line. Uh, and, and, and Ken, you had brought up last week 
the, the different side, the different styles of Jeff Tate. And, you know, early on in Queensryche's career, they definitely were strictly metal. And I think that was, you know, mainly responsible, uh, mainly due to Jeff Tate's, you know, high, higher registered, ag aggressive voice in the earlier albums. Not that he couldn't be aggressive later, but it was, it was definitely um, different in the, in, the, in the beginning albums. So it is sort of a fun conversation wow, to have. Carmo's writing back then was very metal. I mean, it was very eighties metal, and, and well, all their writing yeah. back then. Yeah, was, yeah, I, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I for me personally, I think, and and if we want to go down this track, right, DeGarmo's writing starts to develop perhaps in a different way, but I think what really draws that line or draws that arrow, as the case may be, towards Empire is and it's not the first time they've used it but i will say the extensive use of that clean sound which is so prevalent all over empire and um promised land to a certain degree as well well i i, I would just like to reframe this this conversation i consider myself a fan of both chris DeGarmo, the proposed pop meister in this conversation for lack of a better term and i consider myself very much a fan of michael wilton the more aggressive metalhead of the pair if you had to classify it i don't understand where are we going down this road to to be hard on the no. more commercial version of it or are we uh, going down this not road? at all because all, all i was pointing out is that like you like you, if you look at the 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 writing credits, and and I am also a fan of both Wilton and DeGarmo, and I I do not want to take us down a road that makes Chris DeGarmo the Phil Collins of Queensrÿche. <laughs> but, but that's exactly what you open the door but, to. That's not that's not my point. My point is that if you look at the credits on Empire, it is regardless of who is contributing it is almost all, all DeGarmo. i think empire and resistance are the only two songs that that he is not a part of and 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 while i i don't have any all, all i'm saying is that clearly at empire the scales tipped and DeGarmo was the creative force driving the band and I think it's all I'm suggesting is that it's 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 flagged a little early here in the second half of Operation Minecraft. That's all. That's that's all I was really trying to say. I think what we're seeing here is some some early view bias against Empire here in the Palaver is is what I'm picking up on. But this goes back to uh, the the EP. I mean, the the, uh, the Queen of the Reich was all the Garmo. The Lady Wore Black was all DeGarmo with Tate doing the lyrics. Um, you know, nothing against Knight Rider or Blinded, but Wilton's songs weren't as well-received as DeGarmo's songs at that period in the band. And it was DeGarmo driving the ship. And then we get to The Warning, and there is a little more Wilton, but still DeGarmo was all over it. And he's got different phases, and he's clearly not the... He's not trying to write Easy Lover here. So uh, <laughs> I, 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 I just didn't like the direction that, that this conversation All right, was I, 
you're saying DeGarmo was always the creative force behind the band. He and it, yeah, and, and and even after you know reading the unauthorized biography, he was an organizational force. So so in addition to being a primary songwriter, to being the best sounding board for Jeff's ideas, and you know picking up slack where the management you know needed you know extra help, he was just always at the center of it. He was always driving it, whether it was you know, getting his brother to do videography or making something else happen. He was always at the center of it. And I just wanted him to get credit for his varying roles, not just the role of, hey, we're going to make a lot of money off of silent lucidity. All right. I, no, that's I, not what I, I, I was getting at. Yeah, I, I didn't I didn't necessarily hear that at all. But okay. it, it's, it's, it certainly is a valid point. And, and I will say, just scrolling quickly through, and, and again, I'm just saying it, scrolling through the next three albums after this that have Chris DeGarmo, if you just look at the writing credits, it's the Chris DeGarmo show. <clears throat> yeah, and, and I will say every interview I've seen at, at any point in time, with Greensrike, it's always been Jeff and Chris. Well, and we, we can then, we can talk about that a little bit, yeah, you know, I mean, when we get to Empire as well. It seems like Chris and, and Jeff have always been sort of the mouthpiece for the band. So. so that being said, any other general topics before we get into the tracks? <laughs> Hearing none... I don't, even think, I don't even think I know any Faster Pussycat songs. I'm just going to tell you. <laughs> So I made, you know, I made some some pretty hyperbolic comments regarding this album last week, not least of which was the fact that I'm I'm going to put forth the fact that with this album, Queensryche outdoes the sound design masters themselves, Pink Floyd with how they utilize various sign design elements through this. And perhaps nothing illustrates that more than the first minute 17 of this record. The only thing I can say to disagree with that, Joe, is that you'll never hear a snippet of a Pink Floyd album show up on Motley Crue's Dr. Feelgood. <laughs> That's true. I mean, they basically, I mean, I get it. So, so let's, let's explore that for a second. Okay. So, <laughs> so what what we're saying here then is the hospital sounds in the beginning the dr blair dr blair dr hamilton dr j, j. Hamilton. hamilton yes we're saying that that is essentially sound design clip art that was used by both queens and motley crew is that yes. what we're saying that's exactly what we're saying okay and yes. it, and it's not just what we're saying it's the truth well, oh, we're speaking the truth. We Wonderful. are. We're but, speaking the word. But and 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 not being terribly familiar with Doctor Feelgood, even though I believe I own the vinyl of it. I think maybe <laughs> I, I. I don't know. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Not being. No, no. no, all right, hold on, hold on. <laughs> take like, 
we just take a minute break, and I just want to know your thought process about just where were you when you bought Doctor Feelgood? Where were you living? What were you doing? What were you thinking? Tell me about this. Tom, you know better than to ask me what I was feeling or remembering. My memory is shit. I don't even remember if I own the damn thing. I think maybe I do, but I don't know. Um, it, it it could have come into my possession in any number of ways. It's neither here nor there. Now we've got to look up, when did fucking Dr. Feelgood come out? No, it, it was like either 89 or 90. Okay, so it's contemporary with mind crime. Yes. So, be that as it may, and we'll take that part. What I'm curious, I mean, there's there's a lot more in this minute 17 than just the Dr. Blair, Dr. Blair bit. So, yes, for sure. You know, the, the, the sound of the footsteps, the news broadcast in the background. There is the whole nurse interaction, which, why is the nurse British exactly? I don't know. We have open borders. But we like it. <laughs> I think that's exactly why. Um, we have we have Nikki introducing us to this whole thing, right? And, I, I mean, I just think it, it does such a fantastic job of setting the table. It, it immediately pulls you in to, to this world. I mean, in, in, what is that, 77 seconds, it literally takes you from outside and you're completely inside. Just like that. So even if one small bit of that is sound design clip art, it's sound design clip art that used, is used in a phenomenally effective way. Fair enough. I mean, because oftentimes you get you know, a little throwaway track like this. And it's just that. It's a throwaway track. Mm -hmm. But I Remember Now is so integral to this record, especially whenever we get there, to how the fucking record ends, right? Because they, you know, they they pull the Dark Tower circle of Ka on you. Right. And it, it's, it's absolutely genius the I'm way sorry, they do can that. You, can you elaborate on that? It, it is true, though, real quick, the, the newscast, like the newscast fills in pieces of the story, like it lets you know what's happening, right? It's right. So it is it, so it is central to the record, to your point, Joe, it's not just fodder to, you know, make the background sound cool. Yeah. Yeah, it, it is. Ken, you were asking for clarification on the circle of Ka, as I called it? Indeed. All right, spoiler so alert. spoiler alert for those of you who have not read the Dark Tower series. Um, th the Dark Tower series is a book of, of seven books written by Stephen King, from which this podcast has you know gotten its name, as well as the inspiration for our Gunslinger um, logo. In that story, the central character, a gunslinger by the name of Roland Deschaines, speaks often of this concept of ka, which, you know, you can think of it as karma, what goes around comes around. Ka is always described as a wheel, and it keeps 
spinning and rolling. And ultimately what happens at the end of the story is the character Roland finally, and this is the spoiler. So if you haven't read the book and you are interested, stop listening for the next, you know, 30 seconds. Roland's character reaches the fabled dark tower as he's climbing up the tower, he's, all the rooms along the stairs are represent different points in his life. And he reaches the top of the tower and he, he opens the door and is pulled through a doorway right back to the beginning of the whole story cycle. So he never gets out of the loop. He keeps reliving the, the same thing. Oh, and, and, and thus, Operation Mind Crime is a circular experience. Exactly. Now, that obviously plays much better on CDs, where it, you know, if you have a single disc player and it just reaches the end, and Nikki says, I remember now, and zoop, it goes right back to, to, to track one and feeds back yep. in. Now, that's the one beef I have with the remastered version because they put these two live tracks at the end of it and it, it blows that whole flow right out of the water i just never really thought about comparing sound design from you know say one concept album to another and i i'll say guilty as charged because i heard the wall and pink floyd before i heard rage for order or pretty much anything that had sound design in it. I, I think I've always just defaulted like, ah, this is uh, heavily influenced by Pink Floyd and never really thought it could be better. Well, I, I think it is because again, and it goes back to the other hyperbolic statement I made that this is the best concept album of which I'm aware. Now, Pink Floyd used sound design everywhere, all the time to great effect. It's all over um, a momentary lapse of reason, for instance. Yeah. But so it's not just tied to concept albums, but I, I think the way that Queensryche utilizes this to drive the story and co create coherence where there otherwise might not be is something. Yes, Ken. Okay. Uh, I wanted to round out this conversation. Um, the sound effects library in the late 80s and early 90s that had market share was sound ideas, usually a black package, maybe some pink lettering, sound ideas. I presume they got it from there, if not a competing product. And just to talk about dates, spring 88 was Operation Mindcrime, and September 89 was Dr. Feelgood. So the faux pas is clearly in the Motley Crue camp, correct? I would agree. Okay. Absolutely. Yeah. It All is right. their faux pas. All right. I often feel like an attorney reading things into the record on this show. <laughs> and we appreciate that, Ken. I, yeah. And, and I think that's kind of my point is that I don't know that Pink Floyd has ever done, and I could be completely wrong, but I feel like Pink Floyd's sound design was original where Queensryche, and, and granted, it's the smallest little tidbit, right? This little piece of atmosphere of sound design is not original. 
and it therefore show, has the ability to show up on another album's work and you know comparing to like you know momentary lapse of reason where you know they were using the ship's alarm to yeah. you know as part of the sound design or you know they went into a clock uh timekeeper store and they recorded all of the clocks going off right um you know or recording the people giving them prompts that that's that was my so maybe it's less organic but it does, certainly doesn't take away from the effect or impact I will uh, just one note. There's a famous stormtrooper scream in Star Wars, one of the early ones, where the stormtrooper screams, and, and that's actually uh, canned. Uh, and you can go through like, like fifty some movies, and, and you can hear that same scream uh, of, uh, of a of a storm of a stormtrooper. Uh, really? I can't say it. Stormtrooper. <laughs> stormtrooper. Um, screaming. So, even uh, Star Wars has has its uh, deals like that. Um, okay, fair enough. And uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, it is an interesting point. I, I think we were all uh, taken back by it. I mean, the first time I had heard that was when Ken played for us at at, at Morningstar. Um, I, I wouldn't have known back then, but you know, since then, I actually own all the sound ideas library and I, I use them for, for various things so uh you know it, it's it's a tool I, I think that to Queensryche's credit it's so good that we're actually talking about that <laughs> i mean all of the right all of the sound design things that they have and we're actually talking about that one thing i mean this is real high-end um storytelling and it's really attention to detail here so, you know, I think that, you know, this was still early on in their career where they didn't have a lot of money and they still came out with an amazing album, both sonically and, and content wise. So, you know, the fact that they put in something like this doesn't, doesn't really bother me. Uh, it, it is pretty silly looking back at, back at it that, <laughs> that Dr. Feelgood had it in it. Yeah. yeah. One year later. One year later. Uh, <laughs> Tom. Is, yeah. I, I think with this revelation, you have no choice but to include the um, Dr. J. Hamilton, Dr. J. Hamilton, in in the uh, partly palavers version of Nights Are Forever Without You. <laughs> I think you, have to, you have to sneak it in there somehow. All right. All right. <laughs> So here's here's what I here's what I love about the palaver. We have I I don't even know. We've now spent what ten minutes talking about a one minute track that isn't even music. <laughs> so so Paul's call at the top of the episode that we will not get through all fifteen tracks tonight. I think is looking pretty solid at this point. Oh man. <laughs> Tom, Tom, did I did, did did I actually play the sound ideas library for you? I did. I specifically remember that, Ken. We were in Morningstar. Uh, we were working on, I believe, our second demo, mm -hmm. and you were so excited. You brought us into the control room, and I thought you were going to play like some sort of new mix of one of the songs. And we all sat down to listen to this, and you, and you hit play, 
and you're like, check this out. And then you just played the Dr. Hamilton, Dr. Hamilton, Dr. Hamilton. Oh, I found the exact sample. Yeah, you found the exact sample. <laughs> yeah, and it was isolated. And you were just gleaming. And we were like, oh, wow. Uh, I, I mean, I think all of us were a little disappointed, actually, because, you know, for the same reason we're talking about now. But um, it, was a, it was a revelation. I, I definitely remember that. I'm not surprised. That's exactly wow. something I would do. I mean, how could I not? I mean, I'd be, oh, my God, I found it. I found it. Yeah, yeah, I, I, Absolutely. Yeah, that was an interesting summer. I recall bits and pieces of that. So that leads us into the track that is now called Anarchy X, which we discovered was actually originally called Rage for Order and was written for Rage for Order. But to me, I think I'm I'm it, there are a couple different aspects here. One, it's it's another sort of connection between Rage for Order. So again, I think intellectually, in terms of subject matter, with the exception of AI aside, and vampires, that you know, this whole idea of, of looking for order and anarchy and revolution and stuff, that has its seeds in Rage for Order. And so it seems appropriate that it, it's here. And I, you know, if I remember now is the perfect way to open this record in terms of storytelling, I think Anarchy X is the perfect way to open this record musically. Um, you know, and, and one of the things that that's really, to me, always been exceptionally fascinating, and, and it's throughout this record, is how integral Scott Rockenfield makes himself to the music. Again, it's not often on this podcast we spend a lot of time talking about drummers. We just don't. Even when we're, you know, dealing with with bands where the drummers are like super duper famous, we don't generally talk about them. But Scott is going to make himself such a part of the music that you can't not talk about him. I get kind of goosebumpy around cool snare cadences anyway. But oh my God, the the way that 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 snare cadence just fucking drives this song, and then you get Wilton and Degarmo coming and shredding all over your face. It's just it's fucking delightful. Yeah, and and just to take that to the next step, Joe is as it gets to the end, and it gets to the 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 um because like. Um, yeah, like, and and we are going to talk about Scott Rockenfeld a lot because it's really hard. I mean, it's hard to listen to this album and not just be drumming on the the car seat or right or slapping the desk at the at the at the rhythms and polyrhythms that happen throughout, like all of this stuff and just the deliciously tasty fills. Yeah, and the songs loaded with them. How cool. Anarchy X was in the live shows opening for Def Leppard. It was just ridiculously cool. And, you know, off to the left of Rockenfeld is uh, Tate on a keyboard. You know, he had his, mm. his secret keyboard. And, you know, even, even when he wasn't singing, he had something to do. He just looked badass. They, they did a great job with that. And the song itself... It has measures of 
two in there that are really unexpected. It's not a straight four four. Have, have you ever tried to like play along with it or hum along with it? It's really wicked. Let, let me ask the group a question while we while we sit here and and wait for that. So, has have you guys seen Mind Crime at the Moor? No, no one. Okay. Well, homework. Um, actually, there are a couple reasons why I haven't seen all of it myself, um, but I I do think there are, there are a couple of reasons why. Uh, we should probably try to watch that. And the first is, and, and I, I'm trying to decide if this is gimmicky or even more fucking awesome. At um, Mind Crime at the Moor, which was recorded, I think, when Mind Crime 2 was released. It's not really important. While they're playing Anarchy X, the fucking Seahawks drumline comes out. The whole fucking drumline. <laughs> and... <laughs> And they're just, they're drummers all over the place. And wow. it, it's, you know, on one hand, it's kind of like too much and kind of gimmicky. But on the other hand, it's like, who doesn't love a good drum line, right? You know, um, so I, I, I just, I'm curious if, if, you know, if you guys watch that, what you think of it. Because I'm, I'm conflicted. I feel both ways. Wow. I'm very curious now. I would, I would love to see that. Actually, do I, do I still sound like a silo? Uh, you're getting better, Tom. We can understand you now. Okay. Yeah, uh, you sound good. So I would very much like to see that, Joe. Okay. Uh, but um, I think a common denominator is going to be. I mean, Scott Rockenfield has such a distinct voice in this band, uh, even throughout his his tenure in in the band. Um, where he very rarely will just do the two four thing. I mean, he always has some unique way of presenting his his track. And I I think, and we can talk about this later, but I think that Jeff Tate is so inspired and 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 loves Scott Rockenfield so much. He actually. With his band that he had, Operation Mind Crime, I mean, there are tracks, ev almost every track on those three albums, I said to myself, wow, that's something Scott Rockenfield would do. Really? And it's, it's great. I mean, it, the, the drums sound great on those albums. And uh, I, I think that he has such a strong presence um, throughout that even on like solo projects, um, he, he, he's, he's really made his statement. Um, what, one thing I want to say about the beginning of Anarchy X, I have to just say, so we have the sort of uh, military, you know, shuffle in the beginning. And when those dueling guitars very first come in, oh, yeah. I... I get goosebumps every single time. It's when they first come in, yeah, and and they and they're just the dual guitars, and I'm I. It's just like someone just, you know, I I, I just can't describe it, uh, and and that also sets the tone for this album, because although we have heard a lot of dueling guitars in the previous albums, there really is a style to Operation Mind Crime. Uh, with with 
Wilton and DeGarmo, and they're so melodic over heavy tracks. Um, and it's, it's really a staple to the record, but just that very beginning is, is just says it all. And you know, when that comes in, you just, you just know the rest of the album is going to be great. And it is. So again, we're, we're not even three minutes into the record. We haven't heard Jeff Tate sing a note yet. And we are already like cleaning up our pants, right? Because <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's, it's amazing. It is absolutely epic. That runs obviously into revolution calling. So this is, you know, this is a little bit of our, our story background, if you will. You know, we've been, we've been sucked into the world. We're trying to figure out what's going on, you know, with, with the, with the drums and everything else and Anarchy X, you, you get the feeling of, of conflict, of mobilization. Um, but, but Revolution Calling really kind of, you know, puts that, it really kind of brings that into focus. Yeah. And, and if I can just add, Joe, like, I think that Anarchy X to me is, is the cover right it's it's yeah. visually like musically it makes it's the cover of the album and you get that whole sense and that whole piece of it and the cover is is very much a wash of of people revolution calling puts an individual character to all of that angst and and emotion yeah, so so in Revolution Calling, we get introduced to, you know, dare I say, the protagonist. Or the Can we read the lyrics? I, I never knew that there were lyrics to Anarchy X, but it blows my mind. You Weeks mean ago, Revolution in Calling? Occidental Park, oh. hundreds of people gathered for a political rally. There was a man shouting above all the others. Do we have freedom? Do we have equality? This country's changing. It's no longer for all of the people. It is for some of the people. The man's name, Dr. X. Um, Ooh. With all of the delay, I have no idea if that's what's being said. Um, but still, it's not just an instrumental piece. Those lyrics get me juiced right away. There's something about that. It's powerful, but you also know it's unhealthy. Like, it's kind of got me on edge. You know, and like the people who are agreeing with the speaker are not necessarily happy. <laughs> and it sets the tone. Sorry, I just had to go there. No, no, I, I, and, I, and I'm glad you did. I'm, I, I had neglected to bring my, um, my super duper um, package with me down here to Brian. So I'm without some of my material, but that, that is part of it. They have that, those words sort of associated with this track. Now, again, I don't, I, I don't think they're actually in the recording unless they're buried way down deep, but well, clearly we have freedom. Blah. Do we have equality? Blah. I mean, I never knew what it was because we didn't have the internet back then. <laughs> and I didn't buy anything that li and lyrics, but, but, but you know that someone is shouting through a yeah. horn to a crowd of people. 
Yeah. And, but, but I mean, even without knowing what those words are, I think to Paul's point, you get the feeling, right? So back into Revolution Calling. So we, we get introduced to Nikki. And again, it's, it's a very tight, focused sort of protest song, extremely well done, but it's not, it's not a protest song in the sense of, of a a real world protest song. It's, it's setting, it's setting the stage for, for Nikki and, and what he's dealing with in his world. Right. And it, it's complemented by beautifully dirty, raunchy guitars and, and this is one of those cases, like, again, here we are, we're on, on track three, and we, we have to talk about these drum fills in between the verses. Mm. Oh, my God. I mean, <laughs> it, it's, it's stupid that I, have to, <laughs> that I have to spend time talking about, you know, a tiny little drum fill in between the verses of a song. But, my God, you fucking have to. Because, like, I wait for it. Now I'm just like, oh, I can't wait. To- oh, there it is. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I mean, it's it's ridiculous how freaking good it all is. Everything about this. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, and then when you get that dropout break, and you're just like, okay. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Oh. Yeah. You know, it's it's one of those things where there there's always for me there's always a sense of anticipation when I pull this record out. And, and when I put it in, and it's almost like when you get to the, the top of the first hill of a roller coaster, once you go over that, that hill, you're going, baby. And, and that's what I feel like with this. These first, these first you know, five or six tracks, it's nonstop. And I mean, it doesn't stop after that either. But it, it's just, it's so fast right out of the gate. Yeah. And it's just like, oh. And I, and I think that's what. I think over the years has just made me appreciate this in such a higher level because when I was a senior in high school, it was, it was incredibly easy to just be in that mode of dissatisfaction. And yes, there's a revolution calling and it's unquestionable to me, you know, and, and all these years later, it doesn't take me long to get back to that place when I start listening to this, you know, and because it's just delivered so fluidly to me, it's ultimate in the musical storytelling. And maybe that's the rock opera in it that it just delivers that, that mood. And then it, it begins the story and it puts you in the frame of mind of the character so easily. And, and I'll, and I'll say it as, as well as anything that we've talked about here on the palaver similar to the way that Les Mis puts you into the frame of mind of Jean Valjean early on when he's on the chain game. Um, it's fantastic. References to Pink Floyd's The Wall, but you outdid me by Les Mis. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this, this sets the scene. And Jeff's singing has changed and he's singing he's not doing a lot in the way of the the screaming or the heavy metal from the previous albums it's it's a bit more of his true voice which is good but it's also a little chilling at times (laughs) (laughs) 
I mean, he's still in the stratosphere. <laughs> you're right. It's tricky because when you start listening to it, you're like, ah, oh, I can sing this. And you start singing along in the verse, and you're like, fucking A, I'm going to get to sing a Queen's Right song. <laughs> and, then, and then it gets to the bridge, and you're like, oh, motherfucker. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. yeah, totally. So. You know, and I guess Ken, to your point, right? How can we how can we outdo a a lay Miz tie-in? But I feel obligated to point out. So if we go into what I guess we'll call the second verse, I'm tired of all this bullshit they keep selling me on TV about the communist plan and all the shady preachers begging for my cash, Swiss bank accounts while giving their secretaries the slam. They're all in penthouse now, or Playboy magazine, million dollar stories to tell. I guess Warhol wasn't wrong, fame 15 minutes long. Everyone's using everybody making the sale. There are a couple things there. So the the whole um, shady preachers begging for my cash, it came later, but that draws me to um, Jesus, he knows me. There are there are other ones. Um, I guess the Hooters had Carlo or um, Satellite, but but Jesus, he knows me is is sort of where I go with that. And you know, again, it's just drawing a connection here. But but let's talk from from a technical perspective, not just note singing, but the ability to get out. I mean, you heard me. I had to slow down. I guess Warhol wasn't wrong. Fame fifteen minutes long. That's hard to say. Mm-hmm. Much less yeah. fucking sing it in the middle of all this other shit going on. Uh, I mean, it's just it, it's little things like that that astonish me that that Jeff is able to to do this with such a plum, and you know on on a less lofty note, and and it's maybe not quite so much here, although it's a little bit. One of the things that I find absolutely remarkable and dare I say endearing about this record. As phenomenal as it is, as great as the world building and the storytelling and the music and everything else, this album has some of the greatest IRLs ever drafted. (laughs) (laughs) Moral. Yes. For those of you um, who are not familiar with the concept, you know, here again, we in in this particular segment of the palaver, we have completely regressed to teenage boys. And we used to have a joke where we would talk about IRLs called immoral rock lyrics, where you could sing about anything in in a heavy metal or rock song. And in fact, we were known to sometimes actually draft those specifically, not anything maybe that I'm too proud of. But there was a really good collaboration Paul and I did that turned out <laughs> spectacularly well in uh, in this regard. <laughs> Um, and I guess, you know, given the fact that we have covered Peter Gabriel, I shouldn't feel too uncomfortable about this, but, uh, um, we will get to some of the immoral rock lyric portions later on, but even when they show up, it's done with a completely straight face in service of the story. So, you know, I, I and, yeah. and that's what I love about it. While we're on the, um, topic of lyrics and, and Jeff Tate. One of the things that I really appreciate after the fact, um, go, going through this, and I don't mean to put you on the spot here again, Joe, with the whole hair metal thing, but um, <laughs> I, one thing, like a pet peeve I've always had with like hard rock stuff is that 
they do the verse or pre-chorus and then, and then the chorus and then the, then again and then they solo and then they repeat the, the verse again yeah and like in songs like looks to kill or round and round you always you're always hearing the same verse that you heard and you're hearing the same verse you're you know from first to third um now what is amazing about this record uh is well one of the <laughs> many things good god one of the many things that is amazing about this is their use of story there to, to move the story forward uh jeff tate isn't uh repeating even the pre-chorus uh there's, there's a couple lines that he repeats yeah. so i'll i'll go through it now but he actually mixes it so in the beginning um says i used to trust the media to tell me the truth tell us the truth but now i've seen the payoffs everywhere i look who do you trust when everyone's a crook skip down to the, the pre-chorus the next one it goes i used to think that only america's way way was right yeah now the holy dollar rules everybody's lives gotta make a million doesn't matter who lies uh it, it's just you they're they're painting a picture here um like true storytellers and they're not taking the easy way out they're really giving us a lot of information early on in this story and i know there's going to be a parallel here when we're, we're talking about story elements and music elements and production elements but when we're talking about story elements uh it, it's it's it gives this a lot of weight when you can um when you can really paint a vivid picture early on and 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 and, and put these characters in such rich environments and I, I think that when you when you do things like not take the easy way out and just like repeat things i mean obviously when with the songs you're going to want to repeat certain things and that's just part of the game yeah uh, you know choruses repeat and whatnot and there were lines here and there actually the, the beauty of what i just read is that there were lines that were repeated um and they they just helped move the the story forward but it was sort of mixed with original content so uh th th there's just things that really i really respect from the story point of view of, of this album and, and and that's one of them and I've been, you know, while we've been talking, I've also been been thinking about some things that maybe aren't reflected in my notes here. I, I was sort of honing in on the the sort of the the vocals and the chorus, which are are kind of epic, which led me back to Rock and Field. And here again, stupid fucking thing. But when he's sitting on the bell of that ride symbol during that chorus, it's just. Mm -hmm. It's mm -hmm. delightful. And why yeah. am I noticing that? There's all this other stuff going all around, and I'm listening to the bell of a ride cymbal, and I'm loving it. It's amazing <laughs> to me. Wow. <laughs> it's, it's the distant cousin of the cowbell. It really is the driver of a lot of this music. And, I, I mean, I, I need a Kmart blue light to turn on every time Peter Collins does something amazing. Because <laughs> I feel like... <laughs> He's a constant blue light special. Like, just do you know why your, you know, Opeth album or your Mastodon album or even your Dream Theater album doesn't move me quite this way? I can hear every goddamn lyric. So, 
you know, yeah, there you go. I know what the story is. I don't have to think about it. I don't have to read a piece of paper. I don't have to go on the internet. I get it immediately. And I, I have to attribute that to Peter Collins. Mm. That that's an excellent call out, Ken, because I mean, and and no knock on it, because obviously in in other episodes I've rated it exceptionally high. But I mean, how long did we hang out with Brave before it dawned on us that it was a concept album, right? Well, probably because you can't hear half of it. But but I I think that's exactly what Ken's talking about. There is right. no doubt yeah. here, and you know, first time through, what the fuck's going on? And even in later. Queensryche stuff. I'm not hearing every word as good as yeah. this. I mean, this is exceptional. I, I mean, to be fair, you know, my copy of the cassette right on that big long box that it came in did have a big <laughs> sticker that said best heavy metal concept album since The Wall. So, I mean, like, I knew it was a concept album before I even took it out of the wrapper. I but, wasn't aware yeah. that The Wall was a heavy metal album. That's well, good to know. Yeah. Best concept album, rock opera. I don't know what it said, but it called it out, you know, Q Prime. Q Prime was on top of things at that point in time. Nice. Um, that yeah. That again, like it's so easy. By the time you get to the end of the song, it's not difficult to put yourself in the shoes of Nikki, who is disenchanted with the world, who's down on his luck. He's pretty much willing to do anything to make a buck, and you know, is open and ready for a new type of thinking, a new vision. And, um, you know, the whole, I mean, the whole idea of Revolution Colin, like it, this song perfectly represents a character who is in a spot in life where he's able to be open to an idea and the idea is presented to him yeah. as it's available to you. Like, well, let's go. I, I, I'm going to ask a question because I, I, I sometimes lose sight of, of certain aspects. Part, uh, part of what I feel is so powerful about this, and, and I've made reference to it, is the fact that you can get into this world, you can see exactly what you just described, Paul, from Nikki's point of view, and it, it's almost like a virtual reality, right? You're in there, you have this feeling, you, you have all the inputs, you can see it, but somehow... To me, Operation Mindcrime as a whole is presented in a way that doesn't actually ask you to prescribe to these things. It's not preaching some sort of dogma to you. It's presenting a story it's asking you to believe in as a story. Yeah. Am I wrong on that? Not, a, that not at all. And, and it's kind of genius because, I mean, it's the they tap into the very basic troubles that haunt us even today, right? People struggling to make ends meet, the media, government, and religion fucking everybody up. Like, and, and they're all doing it, let's face it, you know, at, it, or I should say this because I don't want to, I don't want to besmirch anyone in one of those institutions in general, but it's easy to understand how they could all be operating based on the idea of making a profit. But but if you if you think about like a lot of the discourse today, right? It's this or that, my way, your way, whatever. And and this doesn't feel that way to me. You know, it's not again. It's not preaching to me. It's presenting me a story that I can participate yeah. in. So true. That's and, a, that's and a the, great and, point. 
it know, is. Like, and and the beautiful thing is that that story that you buy into, you know, it's very easy to, from, at least for me, I'll say my experience with this is very easy for me to be as frustrated and pissed off and understand how, you know, and want Nikki to be the good guy, right? Through yeah. This whole, whole thing. Well, right? I think that's why I refer to him as an anti-hero because, yeah. I mean, he's a fucking assassin. <laughs> but <laughs> but by the end of it, you're like, well, Nikki got shafted, you know. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it, this is so interesting because, you know, when we do our miniseries, I mean, <laughs> almost um, Dr. X could, in the beginning, like, he's almost a good guy. Like, yeah. He just, yeah, right. he's, because, he's the guy with the plan. He's the yeah, answer. He's the guy with yeah. the plan, and he's not killing anybody yet. He's, like, talking about, he's saying very general things about, um, you know, uh, things that you would want to rebel against. And both sides... Whether you're on the left or right, you can actually take some of those things and 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 borrow it for for your fight, you know. Yeah. And and so you don't really know exactly what's you know what what side he's on. And and to your point, Joe, it just you're able to go with the story, and and you know, Doctor X could be at this point like a good person who you know is trying to help Nikki. And you know it's so it's 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 really compelling story writing, and and uh, that takes us, I, I think, segues perfectly into the title track Operation Mindcrime. Is there a better start to a song anywhere? <laughs> anywhere? Yeah, I, those my my notes on this is those four notes are. Fucking Probably huge! The most important four notes in any heavy metal album, not hard rock album. <laughs> no, no, but um, the, uh, those those notes are quite the staple of this era that we're talking about. Whatever it is, the hard rock, heavy metal, whatever. I mean, there, there's nothing more. There's nothing more identifiable than these four notes. <laughs> so 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 let's let's compare and contrast the the opening of this. Let's take a trip back into the 70s and let's talk about wish you were here. All right? Okay. Had a track, right? Oh, cool little radio. And you scroll through the radio and you hear all these different things and you get to the opening of of um, "Wish You Were Here," and it's it's the acoustic guitar kind of scrunched as if it's in the radio, and then all of a sudden it blossoms into the real track. Right? Very well done, brilliant, absolutely, you know, groundbreaking, wonderful. It's one of the greatest albums of all time. First CD I ever bought. Fucking love it. But let's go to this. Ring, ring. Hello. And then you get those four notes that Tom's talking about squeezed really tiny as if they're coming through an old style telephone. Isn't it adorable? Nikki's freaked out. Boom. Hangs up the phone. You're, you're, you're in his head at this point. You're going, what the fuck was that? What the fuck's going on? And the phone rings again. 
Now, you've already been trained over the last 10 seconds to expect a little teeny tiny little riff. But oh no, you get the fucking full force right in your face and you crap your pants and you go, oh shit! <laughs> and that's why this album is outdoing Pink Floyd at their own game. I mean, wow. I, how do you beat that? Wow. Funny. <laughs> I think the most remarkable thing as it is it it is every bit as awesome as you as you just described and at the same time it's a little cheesy because wow. they're saying revolution calling revolution calling there's a revolution there's a revolution there's a revolution and then the phone rings like it's calling you i mean it's a little cheesy it's kind of funny it's punny it's perfect <laughs> it's perfect pull it off they pull it off well i'm just going to ooze my love all over F-sharp minor. I mean, <laughs> you know, these four notes, you, you got to talk about the beginning of Crazy Train, right? Yeah. Because yeah. If, if, if you're a lover of F-sharp minor, you are really into Crazy Train. You're really into uh, Another Thing Coming by Judas Priest is in this ominous key. Uh, e e even Jakey e. Lee paying homage to Randy Rhodes in Crazy Train, in the bridge of Bark of the Moon does some of this uh, F-sharp minor voodoo with the uh, the minor sixth, the fifth to the flat sixth. I mean, the C-sharp to the D is the fifth to the minor sixth, and it's just eerie and creepy and wonderful. Um, I'm sure the list goes on and on, but, 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 but you know, 80s-wise, that's what jumps out to me. And... It's just perfect, and they own it. Well, and, and I think, you know, in terms of of the, the story that's being conveyed here, right, this is the creepy, eerie, wonderful part of it because Nikki's walked into the recruiting office at this point, and it's like, all right, son. And, and you know, what seemed like a really great idea out in the park, you know, it's one of those things where he's still juiced up enough, I think, and I'm, you know, sort of paraphrasing. He's still juiced up enough, up, up, literally juiced up in, in this particular song um, to go along with it. But, you know, I, I, at the same time, you get that sort of feeling of ominousness that something isn't quite right. Nikki hasn't picked up on it or he hasn't acknowledged it. But I think Nikki is starting to sort of feel it, even this early on. Because when you talk about the story, right, the first half of this record covers a huge chunk of the story. And the back half of the record is very compressed in terms of the time elapsed in all of this. My favorite part of that experience of him, you know, walking into the recruiting office is the lines, I'm gonna take away the questions. Yeah, I'm gonna make you sure. Yeah. That's well, fucking cool. Beyond the opening riff, which is, again, it's it's a defining riff in for this record. But there, there are a couple of other things. Eddie Jackson gets to throw in some tasty bass fills yeah. um, throughout this. And it's nice to, to be able to sort of focus in on him a little bit, which is fun. And he gets to do it several times, which is great. 
for me, and, and again, maybe this is a gimmick and maybe I just get drawn in by the, the flashy lights, but you know, when, when the guitars go into the arpeggio just before the, the, the chorus, it just kind of like slows everything down, hangs you out in midair and then goes into the chorus. I just, I love that. I think it's so good. You, you cannot hear watch the dragon burn without, without the bass fill anticipation <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> of hearing that bass fill and everybody hears it they're like okay this is the line <laughs> and, uh, and everyone sort of you know sings it go that's true it's just it's unbelievable how the drums and bass get their due on this album in in just the the right spaces um yeah they're just very uh very 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 tasteful so it's funny when we talk about this um just looking at the lyrics right and and again we're in you know we're going to go with this recruiting office thing it just takes a minute and you'll feel no pain got to make something of your life boy give me one more vein you come to see the doctor because I'll show you the cure. I'm going to take away the questions. Yeah, I'm going to make you sure. A hitman for the order when you couldn't go to school. Had a skin job for a hairdo. Yeah, you looked pretty cool. Had a habit doing mainline. Watch the dragon burn. No regrets. You got no goals. Nothing more to learn. Um, now, I know you won't refuse because we've got so much to do and you've got nothing more to lose. So take this number and welcome to Operation Mindcrime. Um, then he goes, we're an underground revolution working overtime. There's a job for you in the system, boy, with nothing to sign. Look at how easy this is. Come on in. You know, by the time it's all said and done, hey, Nikki, you know everything that there is to do. Here's a gun. Take it home. Wait by the phone. We'll send someone over to bring you what you need. You're a one-man death machine. Make this city bleed. Yikes. So mm. if Dr. X was... A good guy, a track ago, he's maybe less so now. <laughs> our, our invisible brother in this podcast, Dan, once made the point to me that this is terrifying, but but they're they're not making this up out of whole cloth. If you look back in history, you had uh, the assassinated nation attempt on Ronald Reagan, and who was. The guy who was in love with Josie, Jodie Foster, Hinckley. Kennedy was shot, and Kennedy's brother was shot, and MLK was shot, and 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 this is just continuing a tradition of heinous assassinations, going all the way back to the Archbishop Duke Ferdinand. But I, maybe that makes it all the more believable and chilling. Yeah, I think it. I think it does. There, there's a there's obviously a wrinkle in having you know it, it you know having a doctor at the sword the center of, of all of this utilizing chemical means to sort of hook his people in but but yeah I mean we have seen all this and and it's not it's not unbelievable and and that is chilling hundred percent and I think I, I think when we get into the next track it's going to become even more so right because you know, if if Nikki came into the recruiting office and and like I said, he may have he may have his radar may have pinged on the sinister nature of what he was getting into, but he was still wound up and let loose on speak. And 
you know, he's still, he, he's a willing participant, I think at this point. Yeah. And well, it, yeah, well, it's fun. Cause the opening line from revolution Colin is for a price I do about anything except pull the trigger. Right. By the end of this track, he's waiting at, at home with a gun to be a hitman for the order. So the questions have been taken away. He's been jacked up on drugs and he's now, you know, and basically been told your life is shit. You don't have anything else to go with. And we know you're going to help us because we've got so much to do and you've got nothing else to lose. Cause you're already at, at the end of your rope. It's fucking awesome from a, to, I mean, to, from a storytelling it's yeah. in, in, in such a short period of time, you've moved this character from point A to point B and to your point, he's about to go nuts point C if there is such a thing I, it's just tremendous to me not only that they pull it off every time I listen to it but how quickly it happens and 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 what I find so chilling as I'm sitting here looking at the lyrics for speak is in in a lot of ways it's it's a rehash of grievances from revolution calling but it's given from Nikki's perspective. He's internalized this. He's now spouting this back, and and it's done in in a really sort of um, what's the word I'm looking for? Sort of a, a connected way, like like you you feel as if you've internalized these things, and, and I you know this part of the story is you know is very dark and, and spooky in that regard. And and even, you know, even the way that it starts, right? So so mind crime closes out, and then we get the the the, the shouting, you know, hey hey, listen to me, you know, and and then you you go into this fiery lick, and you're just like, oh okay, let's go do that. I mean, this song, speak, is huge. It's just enormously large. Everything about it. The, the the guitars are monster. The drums are simply immense. So let's just let's just go through it because it's also good. They've given me a mission. I don't really know the game, yet I'm bent on submission. Religion is to blame. I'm the new messiah, death angel with a gun, dangerous in, in my silence, deadly to my cause. So, Paul, to your point, you know, they cranked him up and they they've turned him loose. And he's he's bought in. He's completely bought in because, and we're going to give him the benefit of the doubt and say his brain is addled at this point on all the drugs, but the point is, he's there. I've given my life to become what I am, to preach the new beginning, to make you understand, to reach some point of order, utopia in mind, you've got to learn to sacrifice to leave what's now behind. So, okay, Nikki's, Nikki's got a thing, but, but it's the next verse that really gets me. I guess it's not even a, a verse, but... Seven years of power, the corporation claw, the rich control the government, the media, the law. To make some kind of difference, then everyone must know, eradicate the fascists, revolution will grow. The system we learn says we're equal under law, but the streets are reality. The weak and poor will fall. Let's tip the power balance and tear down their crown. Educate the masses, we'll burn the White House down. And, you know, when when you get into the choruses... Um, you know, you got that revolution sitting underneath everything. And it's just, yeah. it, oh, 
it's it's absolutely amazing. I think the you know peak Wilton. Yeah, it, it really, yeah. really is. And and then, you know, even at the end, right, you get that sort of drum fill just before the final speak. Mm. I mean, it's so here again, you know, let's 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 think about, you know, where we are. So we have sort of the the quiet open with I Remember Now, which goes into the very energetic Anarchy X, which leads us into Revolution Calling, and then the spooky big riff of Operation Mindcrime, and then this. And it's just like, you know, you're sweating at this point because you know, either either you've you've busted a hernia trying to sing along with Jeff Tate, you've broken your dashboard trying to drum along with Scott Rockenfield, um, or you're just your brain is melting from the story that's going on. There, there's so many different ways that you could injure yourself in in these first five <laughs> tracks. <laughs> well, you didn't mention the Eddie Jackson death punch that I brought up in a previous episode. I did not, but... Are you buying into the death punch by this point in his career? I buy into the death punch on this record. I will say that, certainly. And and I'm going to... Um, I'm going to credit Peter Collins for that. <sighs> the bass sounds so good. It really does. Yeah. What's Paul, fun, in though, a previous episode, you, you, you called into attention that it was semi-distorted bass that, that you were loving from any... Yeah. Right? And yeah. and and it's been it's been teased out to its um proper use here. I think um, yeah. it's not hidden. It's yeah. I think it. I think whatever whatever the whatever whether it's Peter Collins or just the sound that they were going for it it um it's delicious. I, the 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 part there's so much to love about speak, and there's something about the phrase speak to me, the pain you feel. Like in everything mm -hmm. that's going mm -hmm. on in this guy, right? I mean, he is lit up, right? <laughs> and and you know, deadly. Uh, what is it? Uh, no, dangerous in my silence. Deadly to deadly my cause. To my cause. Like he, like you said, Joe. He is all in, and yet when and 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 you know, in my mind, he's saying this outwardly. Like, speak to me. Like he he's not only bought in but he's ready to sell it. And, and there's just something very powerful, you know, about that phrase to me, at least speak to me, the pain you feel. Um, it's, 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 there, it, it's, it, it almost brings uh, an, an inner emotional quality. That's out. That's not rage. You know, I don't know if this is exactly what you're saying, but, but for me, there's a, there's a ritualistic aspect to those chorus lines. Speak to me the pain you feel. Speak the word. The word is all of us. Speak the word. The word is all of us. Mm -hmm. it, and and I'm, I'm personally fixated on the idea of ritualistic language and the power mm -hmm. that that can evoke. And, and so that, for, for me, that's how, how I tie into to what you're talking mm -hmm. about. But, but yeah, I, I agree that you know it it's it's fascinating the way that this is presented yeah real quick i want to just give another shout out to eddie jackson you guys were talking about him um earlier sorry to change the subject back. no 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 I... <laughs> uh, but you know in general it is very hard for bass players in in metal bands to sort of have their voice um because there's there's so much going on you have like really thick bass drums and loud guitars and you know a lot of uh, the bass is always important 
like with a band like Judas Priest, you have like Ian Hill, who's like understated. who's like, oh, oh, he's he's there and it's important, but you don't necessarily hear the bass. Um, it's occasionally you have a band like Iron Maiden and Steve Harris sort of like almost reinvents the thing, and he has his counter counterpart melodies and all that. But I mean, generally speaking, um, it, it, you know, hard rock, heavy metal, the bass sort of has a tendency to um, get lost and you know in a uh, album like Newstead. yeah i was just he just took it right <laughs> out of my mouth uh, justice for all justice for all it happens you can take it out and people don't even notice it right <laughs> so um yeah exactly ken so um a, an album like this which uh, when you can really hear it it's it's meaty you know it's meaty like doug pinnock you know it, it's it you can mm. you can really hear what's going on when you when you can really um, have your cake and eat it too, um, it, it says something about a a player. You know, he's not trying to jam a lot of notes in so he can get his due, but he's not he's not trying to do um, things that that don't fit the the overall narrative of the of the story or the or the or the music really. And we're talking about music per se, but he, he just does. He just finds it. He finds the sound. He finds the licks, and it's just—it's right where it needs to be. And he's uh, over over the years. I found myself noticing how tasteful these these Eddie Jackson licks are, uh, especially in you know in, in this album and and even Empire for that matter. But uh, this album in particular is just. Um, song after song you really appreciate what he does on these on these songs yeah i have to back you up there based on jeff tate's 25th anniversary of operation mind crime tour i'm a huge fan of rudy sarzo but he had to work to be eddie jackson like i don't think it was in his nature to maybe hit that hard or that Exp- that kind of expression but 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 damn if anybody had the creds to pull it off it was Rudy. <laughs> um right yeah yeah um what what really hits me about speak peak wilton um but also in a way peak tate to reach some point of order utopia in mind You've got to learn to sacrifice, to leave what's now behind. Now, that logic is key to any therapy or yoga or personal development or growth program that you can imagine, but they're using it in the most sinister way. And that that gives me chills probably more than any other, you know, to sacrifice, to leave what's now behind. I mean... We all do it as we age and grow older and leave our former selves behind, but he's doing it for all of the wrong reasons, and you can't stop him. Yeah. Delicious. And then, it's not like you, th- you wanted a break, <laughs> but by now, you kind of figured you were going to get a break. You kind of thought you were. <laughs> you thought you were going to get to relax a little bit. <laughs> are, are you going to get to relax, Paul? Hell no. No, you're not. 
I don't think we relax until silent lucidity on the on the island. <laughs> you know, there, there's something to be said for that. So we go right from speak with that huge speak, and I misspoke earlier. Um, the drum break is before the guitar solo, which is awesome. Um, but you get the huge speak, and it kind of resonates out. And then we go right into spreading the disease. Now, you know, this is where, wow, this song, you know, here again, you, I I, 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 I mean, I mean, like if you're, if you're not in the story yet, like you get drawn down into the story by the, the tremolo dive bomb right before the riff, right after the drum starts. It's just like, and you're just like, okay. I, <laughs> I mean, literally, it like takes you down yeah. into the story. So you, you get that delightful drum intro, right? And and this is this is one of those immoral rock lyric songs because we have all the dirty words, we have you know all kinds of sex and bad things going on, but it it doesn't stay there. Right, it starts out as an immoral rock lyric, and you get sort of this very intimate glimpse into what Nikki's actually doing, what Nikki's day to day is like, and it's not pretty. But by the time it's all said and done, and you get down to the bottom, or you know, Nikki is still at this point convincing himself why this is important, and. You know, in in some ways, that becomes, especially, you know, knowing where the story is going to go, that becomes a, a really painful part. Now, maybe with the first time you listen through this and you don't know how things are going to wind up, maybe it's not quite as impactful. But to me, listening to this now and, and reading these lyrics as I'm about to do, I find it just painful the way that Nikki is being played and the way that Nikki in this song, in some regards, appears to play himself in order to keep going along with this. The first part, again, is the is the IRL part. She always brings me what I need without I beg and sweat and bleed. When we're alone at night waiting for the call, she feeds my skin. All right. So Sister Mary's bringing him drugs and giving him sex check (laughs) (laughs) and 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 now we need to learn a little bit about who's this woman right in in the course of the next what 10 15 minutes this woman is going to go from not even being here to being just this larger than life figure and when we eventually get around to talking about the live performance it's going to get even better um, but we get introduced to Mary, 16 and on the run from home, found a job in Times Square working live S&M shows, 25 bucks a fuck, and John's a happy man. She wipes the filth away, and it's back on the streets again. Oh, okay, so this isn't great. Now, we have to take a little sidetrack here, because for, a, you know, and, and most of our listeners, presumably, are old enough to to understand what that is referencing because but anyone who's younger and only knows the disneyfied version of times square is like what the hell does that mean so 
If we go to the Wikipedia to educate ourselves a little bit, if you will indulge me, Times Square is a major commercial inter intersection, tourist destination, entertainment center, and neighborhood in Midtown Manhattan in New York City. It is formed by the junction of Broadway, 7th Avenue, and 42nd Street. Together with the adjacent Duffy Square, Times Square is a bowtie-shaped piece five blocks long between 42nd and 47th Street. Now, it's well known today. A lot of the, the TV shows have studios on Times Square. Obviously, there's the, 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 the New Year's thing. There are all the, the little flashy billboards. But when we were growing up, and, you know, when presumably Jeff Tate was growing up, the 1960s to the 1980s, again, to quote the Wikipedias, from the 1960s to the early 1990s, the seediness of the area, especially due to its go-go bars, sex shops, peep shows, and adult theaters, became an infamous symbol of the city's decline. Times Square was a gnarly, nasty, scary place. And that's what that's what Jeff is referring to here. He's not talking about, you know, the bright and, and shiny um, Times Square that people know today. It used to be an entirely different thing. And there were a bunch of, of people, um, not least of which in the mid-1990s, uh, one Mayor Rudy Giuliani was, uh, you know, involved in efforts to clean up the area. But ultimately, it was investment in the area by the Walt Disney Company, which really led to a lot of the, the cleaning up and forcibly removing some of these seedier establishments out of the area to turn it into the tourist destination that it is today. So I just wanted to, to call that out explicitly because that line seems incongruous today. But at the time that this record was was written, it very much had all the meaning that um, that Jeff Tate implies. So we learn a little bit more about Mary. Father William saved her from the streets. She drank the lifeblood from the Savior's feet. She's Sister Mary now, eyes as cold as ice. He takes her once a week on the altar like a sacrifice. So again, seedy, you know, sex you know, phraseology, um, but it's not, it's not for cheap thrills. It's to give background to this, this figure who's going to become very, very tragic. And it's, I mean, it, it's not like you read or hear these, these lines and you get a jolly out of it. There's nothing nice or pleasant or fun about this. It's sad. And it's yeah. it's it's painful, but it is important um, because it introduces again this this character who is, is becomes the pivot upon which this entire story is going to turn. And we've also been introduced to Father William at this point as well, which is the sort of conduit between right uh, Mary and and Nikki, and he ha has a pretty important part. You just read with sort of his introduction. That's one hell of a way to be introduced, <laughs> but, right? But but here again, right? So you know, we spend those first five songs getting into the world, getting into Nikki, understanding you know what Doctor X's role is, and then here in the course of one song, we introduce two very important characters, give you sufficient backstory to understand exactly what their relation is to everything else, and 
you know, I mean, it's it's brilliant. Yeah. But we're not done. <laughs> because now we get into the into the the part where you know, and this is where I'm I'm interpreting it as as Nikki selling himself, and and we now sort of go back to our litany of 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 grievances. Religion and sex are power plays. Manipulate the people for the money they pay. Selling skin, selling God. The numbers look the same on their credit cards. Politicians say no to drugs while we pay for wars in South America. Um, interesting. Around the time of the Gulf War. Jeff would change that line in live performances to South Arabia, which is, you know, whatever. Fighting fire with empty words while the banks get fat and the poor stay poor and the rich get rich and the cops get paid to look away as the 1% rules America. Spreading the disease everybody needs, but no one wants to see the way society keeps spreading the disease. So if we look at the first part of this, right, we have, we have Nikki who is dependent upon Mary to deliver him drugs and keep him happy with sex while he waits for phone calls to murder people. We have Mary who got into this as a 16 year old runaway who was, you know, working as a low priced prostitute in in times square. And we have father William, a religious figure who has taken advantage of said Mary and is doing all sorts of other presumably nefarious things. All of this sort of intimate, personal pain, suffering, and, you know, nasty stuff is going on. And yet we finish up with why we're doing this, right? It, it's no, there's no mention of Nikki, Mary, or Father William here. It's this society is so bad that this is why I'm doing this. And, I just, I find that to be extremely moving. And at the same time, right now, you know, we talked about not getting a break. We have, we've dialed back the guitar tones a little bit. We now get some of that, that sort of clean guitar tone going underneath this, at least during the um, religion and sex or power plays part, right? But it, it doesn't lessen the tension in any way, shape, or form. And by the time we come out of it, we we go back to you know full bore on on the outro of spreading the disease with the chorus. I mean, it's I think it's brilliant. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I mean, this is the peak of the album right here. I want to say that that piece in the middle religion and sex or power plays where it's all jungle drums. Yeah. It's one of the more forward sounding forward thinking parts of the whole album. I mean, you you can almost see, you know, rage against the machine popping out of this little section or something. And it's got some balls on his skin. It's not your same old heavy metal. Um, it's, it's pretty significant contribution from them and thematically you can see where the song empire popped right out of this yeah and and uh, ken i'm glad you brought that up because while i have been fixated on sort of the thematic ties between rage and uh operation mind crime there are thematic ties forward into empire as well as you just pointed out so Rage meaning rage for order. Yes. Right. 
There are many yeah. rages happening in this country. Yes, rage rage for order into mind crime and then mind crime into empire. You're absolutely correct. What we have here is one character, Nikki, who's been taken from what he knows and transformed into his worst possible self behind the cause. And then we have Mary, who is a runaway, um, becomes a prostitute, and then supposedly is saved from the streets, but basically just abused and used again. And as we'll find out in a couple songs, just a whore for the underground. It, they're too, I mean, it's amazing that they can just pull that together in such a short period of time in this song. And the, and just using the phrase Father William, I mean, we don't really even need to know what his purpose is, right? You know, Joe, like you said, he's clearly up to some nefarious whatever. But the whole religion and sex are power plays section, I think, is just... It, it creates, like you said, Joe, the reason, right? A world that is so bleak and that one that we are so helpless to do anything about other than completely annihilate it. And it's, um, it's, in, it's incredibly powerful. And talk about forward looking. Um, you know, this harkens back to the Black Lives Matter episode that we did, right? The line, politicians say no to drugs while we pay for wars in South America. Um, I, I mean, you could you could talk about that those two lines. I think you guys did for about twenty minutes, um, and they so eloquently just put it out there in black and white in nineteen ninety, right? Um, it's really impressive, and it's it's even at fifty one, I can experience angst while while listening to to this section, and it does. I think it just. It, it, it puts all the pieces on the table and lets us get to the nitty gritty of, of the story. And yeah. You know, <clears throat> I know this, you know, this album came out in 88, you know, worth the height of a lot of the um, 80s silliness. Oh yeah. 88. Sorry. I said 90. Yeah. Uh, 88. This is sort of the height of, um, the sort of 80s silliness and there's um you know hence there was you know grunge was born out of you know all the uh, ridiculousness of you know the simple lyrics and and all the um uh, talking about immoral rock lyrics those type of things um we're talking about in this song spreading the disease it's almost like we're getting almost like a Martin Scorsese feel to music or even like mm. what saving private Ryan did. Yeah. The war movies to make it more real. Like Jeff Tate of the whole band is, is really painting such a vivid picture. That's not, it's not pretty. It's not something that you really want to hear, but that's, that's what engaging storytelling is. It's, it's not all, you know, pardon the term, but it's not all Disney. It, there, there's really, um, a dark side of, of things and it's done in a very vivid way and so it's almost um, you know this album is ahead of its time but it's also timeless in, in, in the same way and it, it sort of gives you it, it, it 
put you in that place that you need to be put in and it doesn't let go and this song in particular spreading disease is is, is one of those songs are, are we even still in this song i, I forget yeah I yeah we song. are absolutely okay. <laughs> uh, so um you know this song this song in particular um really it, that grittiness of this song is, is very important to uh, why I think this this album is is timeless, and why it still has respect um, in in many circles, if not all circles, uh, of 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 this sort of medium. And um, you know, it takes. I think at the time, you know, I, I think it would take a lot of guts to sort of, you know, sing the song because people are used to hearing songs about getting laid on a Saturday night and going to strip clubs and girls, 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 and, you know, that kind of stuff. And now yeah. we're singing, you know, the sort of the opposite of, of that, like the, like the darker side of that. And, and it's, but it's somehow commercial too. I mean, everything is just, it's just so amazing. Yeah. Like when you think about all the elements that are coming together and in a commercial way, and I hate using that word commercial, but it really is, um, you know, when you sell out, you know, 20,000 seats, you know, you have, done something commercially successful so i'm going to say it's commercial but when, when you add this darkness to um commercial success is is really something but uh, the this song is is really important to that i think well and I, I i yeah tom i love i love the the connection to sort of the saving private ryan thing i think it's it's so well spotted when you think about this right ken to your point the fact that you know, you hear every lyric and, and the fact that let's, let's give Tate some credit. And I think we, we have sort of implicitly, but let's give it to him explicitly for being able to deliver the story so concisely, because again, if, if it was a situation where you weren't paying attention and you heard some of the words in the front part of that, again, you know, the immoral rock lyric type thing, you might think, Ooh, you know, sexy time. <laughs> but there's no way that you can misinterpret what those words are and what they mean. Yeah. There, There is no way because everything about this record is so immediate and so obvious. And, and I don't say that in a, in a negative way. There's, you know, there's, there's no way to, to misinterpret this, I think. Yeah. Well, I mean, and the other thing that's obvious, not in a negative way, but it's, it's you know what tom says is timeless it these are universal things yeah religion and sex are power plays manipulate the people for the money they pay has anything changed nope. in the last 30 some years no I, I you know and i love the line selling skin selling god the numbers look the same on their credit cards i, I right it, it, again it's not it, it's not the it's not a fish lyric it's not the most clever use of the words i've ever heard but it, it gets right to the point and, and it communicates something that I can comprehend. And I, I really react to that. Yeah. So supporting what you guys are saying, um, Jeff Tate was 29 years old by my math. And he wasn't defending his thesis in grad school or taking this to the boss or to the provost. Or, I mean, <laughs> I'm sure he had to get it passed the record company and he had filters and sensors but this is this is kind of an unfettered editorial in real life of this mm -hmm. man and it's cool and we identify with it yeah 
Yeah. Mm. And I, and I do like, you know, Tom, what you mentioned, like so much, I mean, even so much of that pathetic list that Joe read earlier with all of those eighties bands, right. And the IRLs, right. The whole, the whole joke around having IRLs was this glorification of just sex and, and it, I mean, like, can, I mean, can, just in your mind, briefly picture, you know, some of the videos that Rat had, right? Yeah. Or Def Leppard, Pyromania, whatever that song was called, with the women in the cages, right? Like, you know, it glorified sex. It glorified the objectification of women. It was natural for that to be part of our culture. And here, in that very same time frame you know jeff tate is calling out like how you're all being duped yeah right? you're all getting you're all being duped people are people's lives are being destroyed because there's a very small group of people getting rich off of and you know no one wants to see it the way society keeps spreading the disease i mean it is fucking like it's powerful I don't know if it's the peak of the album, Ken, but it's definitely incredibly powerful when you when you stop and think. And maybe that's the most challenging part about this song. It's just such a driving force of music that you know you really do have to stop and think about it. By rough calculation, we're about. I was just going to say, maybe the best way to move on is to pontificate whether we should stop or not. No, no, that, that's not. <laughs> I, I, I already, I already know that we're going to stop, so that's not, that's not the thing. But, but I do want to, I do want to sort of tie this up a little bit um, because I, and, 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 in all honesty, you know, we can't get into this next section and then stop. We, we have right. to stop now. We absolutely have to, but but let's think about this. We are, by rough calculation, about twenty minutes into this album. Maybe you know twenty or thirty seconds less than than twenty minutes. Um, just kind of guesstimating. I mean, think of how much has occurred in terms of the story and the music in those twenty minutes. I mean, it's taken us two hours just to talk about it. It is. And, and this is why this record to me is so absolutely amazing. My preferred way to listen to this, as I mentioned, is on the CD because you can get that sort of feedback loop and, and everything flows seamlessly. This is an album that was made at the time of, of the CD, I think, and, and it was it works best in that medium. Now, I do have... You know the the recently redone 180 gram vinyl version of this, which is a two LP set, and sonically it is absolutely wonderful. Um, it, it's it's delightful. I've only ever listened to it on my good stereo system. I mean, my both of my stereos are are pretty good, but my one is is much better, and that's the one I've listened to this on and. And this album on that vinyl version is delightful, but having to flip discs t three times is or, or change them is is very it it pulls you out of this. And and I just like to call out that the first disc um, on on that version side one is I remember now through speak, and so you don't get that 
wonderful flow from speak into spreading the disease. Um, but you get to flip it over and you get to enjoy spreading the disease, the mission and sweet sister Mary on side two, which is just incredible. Absolutely phenomenal. Um, so, you know, and, and that has nothing to do with anything. It's just, I'm putting it out there sort of, this is my, my recent experience. Um, but, but this, this conversation so far has been, again, everything that we could have possibly wanted it to be. And so we will, we will put a pause on it here and we'll have to come back for, um, is this a groundbreaking third episode on a single record? I know we did, did we do three full episodes on the wall? I think maybe we did. I felt like it. This is a record. Yeah, we'll see. Um, so anyway, we will come back and I have confidence that next episode we can finish out this record, maybe. And, wow. and I, listen, if we can get through the mission and Sweet Sister Mary in less than two hours, <laughs> I will be impressed. <laughs> You know, Paul, that's that's not that's not outrageous. Uh, <laughs> we only made it through twenty minutes of music, but this is the equivalent of the lamb lies down on Broadway through the cage. So, thinking it, about it that way, it it was worth it. Yeah. Um, but anyway, we'll come back next time. We'll get as far as we can, but we'll start with the mission into Sweet Sister Mary. I, I'm going to. I've been thinking about this in in the the intervening week from the last episode, and I'm going to propose, if you guys are willing to to play along, that you know we we take as however long it needs to finish this album, but I'm going to propose then, much like we did for the wall, an extra episode on the live versions. That would be Operation Live Crime and Mind Crime at the Moor. Um, where we can compare and contrast and have a little bit of fun. I don't know if there are any um, recordings online of Tate doing this himself, but maybe we can throw that in as well. Just a thought. We can see where it takes us. But, um, you know, I, 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 I do think from a podcast perspective, you know, this album is providing exactly the level of discussion that I would have or could have imagined. And so as always, gentlemen, I thank you for your most excellent participation. And I very much look forward to talking about the mission, Sweet Sister Mary, and whatever else we can get to next episode. hope you've enjoyed this episode of progressive palaver as always we've enjoyed sharing the conversation with you and we look forward to your thoughts comments feedback and questions you can reach us on facebook instagram or twitter we are at prog paula on all of those or search for progressive palaver you're welcome to email us our email address is prog paula that's p-r-o-g-p-a-l-a at gmail.com Progressive Palaver is available for subscription and download on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Pandora, or presumably wherever you find your podcasts. And we are, as always, hosted on SoundCloud. So until next time, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.